Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court and CPS issues. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and to honor alienated parents next month on International Parental Alienation Awareness Day, Epiphany Awaits is offering a faith-based retreat for alienated parents with both in-person and a Zoom option on April 23rd through the 25th, 2021 at the Resolution Center in Jacksonville, Florida. Only $100 for a weekend of support for the journey with speakers, including Dr. Mark Roseman and other professionals focused on guidance, friendship, and compassion. Seating is limited and discount applies to registration before March 15th. After March 15th, $125 registration fee. Scholarships are available. Email request for application and registration form to epiphaniesawait at gmail.com. That's E-P-I-P-H-A-N-I-E-S-A-W-A-I-T at gmail.com. That's epiphaniesawait at gmail.com. And I have a guest. His name is Dr. Evan Stark. He is a sociologist forensic social worker. He's widely published author and researcher with an international reputation for his innovative work on the legal policy and health dimensions of interpersonal violence, including its effect on children. Dr. Stark's award-winning book, Coercive Control, The Entrapment of Women in Personal Life, published by Oxford in 2007, has played a major role in redefining domestic violence internationally and is one basis for the new offense of coercive and controlling behavior in the England, Scotland, Ireland, Australia, and elsewhere. He is also co-founder of an early shelter for battered women in New Haven and co-director of the path-breaking Yale Trauma Studies. He has held numerous state and federal appointments related to domestic violence. Dr. Stark has served as an expert in more than 100 criminal, family, civil, and child welfare cases throughout the United States and in Canada, and provided evidence in the Sally Challen case before the Royal High Court of Appeals in London. He has held academic appointments at Yale, at University of Essex, Bristol University, the University of Edinburgh, De Montfort University, and Rutgers University, where he is Professor Emeritus in public affairs and public health. So I totally welcome Dr. Evan Stark to my podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. So when you wrote this book, Coercive Control, how long did it take you to write this? Well, the book came together in stages because part of it came out of cases that I was working on. And a good deal of it was written in response to what women were telling me and stories that we had heard in one form or another from the day we opened the shelter and took the first woman and her children into our home. But in the court setting, we're being told in a systematic way that I could translate into a new approach to understanding what these women had experienced and more broadly, understanding domestic violence. Let me back up and say, um, we had been involved in this work with women who were abused since the early 1970s. So that gives you an idea how long this was. Uh, my wife and I were with Erin Pitsy when we, at Chiswick House, which was the first battered woman shelter in London, 1974. And Sharon Vaughan, who started the first shelter in St. Paul, Minnesota, in the United States, 
was one of our close allies and friends. So, you know, we, we were in this for a long time. And the first woman that really we hid in our house when we asked her to talk about the violence told us at the time, violence wasn't the worst part. And I, I, I remember as if it were yesterday, turning to her and say, talk about the violence, because that was what our focus had been on. And it literally took 30 or 40 years for me to go back and remember what that woman had told me. And in the context of trying to provide an adequate defense for women who had responded to tremendous oppression on their freedom and independence, but had been not badly physically abused at all, relatively speaking, what she had meant, violence wasn't the worst part. So I just want you to know that we had done an enormous amount in the first four years of our movement. We opened up hundreds of shelters in the United States and thousands throughout the world. We provided safety for millions of women. We saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, we had passed laws, uh, funded huge numbers of health and social service institutions, family court responses throughout the United States. Um, and so it, the domestic violence revolution was an incredibly successful revolution. And it built very much on the idea that there was this egregious injury to women's physical bodies. Our first piece of research, Yale, by Ann Flitcraft and myself, showed that domestic violence was the leading cause of injury for which women sought medical attention, more common than uh, auto accidents, rapes, and muggings combined. And that was absolutely unknown at the time. And it shocked medicine. It shocked child welfare. It shocked the criminal courts. Uh, states passed domestic violence laws. Uh, thousands of men were arrested for domestic violence crimes. Under Bill Clinton, we had the Family Violence Prevention Act. Um, which uh, now is some disrepute because it was attached to the notorious crime bill. But uh, Joe Biden was then uh, spearheading the effort to criminalize domestic violence. It was a tremendous victory. But the thing that I realized somewhere around the turn of the 20th century, 21st century, was that the domestic violence would all we had achieved, the domestic violence revolution, at stall. Although we were arresting thousands and thousands of men for domestic violence crimes, virtually none of these men were going to jail. What was happening was we were creating a revolving door with the criminal justice system where the same men would get arrested week after week, month after month, and they would return to the community, to the homes and the children they had come from and repeat their abuse, be arrested again and so forth. And we were sheltering the same women again and again. Our work, which was supposed to be the work of empowerment. I'm so sorry we had an interruption in our podcast. I'm here with uh, Dr. Evan Stark and we were talking about the revolving door in the criminal justice system and women returning back into the shelters. Um, and why do you think that was that there was, it, these women just kept returning, were they not 
penalizing their abusers. Well, the point, the, the point I was making was that essentially the domestic violence revolution had stalled. And one of the signs that it had stalled was that none of the men that we intended to punish were going to jail for an insubstantial period of time. And as a result of that, they were returning to the communities, often to the homes, and they were re-abusing their wives and children, continuing to abuse them. The women were coming back to the shelter, not because they repeat victims, but because they were continuing to be victimized. The third thing that we realized, and, that, and I pointed out that that was reflected in homicide statistics, the fact that the killing of men declined, but the killing of women did not. And primarily the killing of men declined because women were leaving and men were being arrested at the points of greatest danger to them. But the women were continuing to be entrapped because the men remained in the community. And the third thing that we realized why the domestic violence revolution was stalled was because there were a number of things that were being done to these women in addition to the fact of the violence that was outside the scope of the law or was a crime, but not when it was committed against partners. So for example, these women were being sexually assaulted. 40% of the women in our shelters reported that they were being sexually abused, and not only sexually abused, but repeatedly sexually abused. And that rape was occurring in these relationships on a continuum from liberal rape all across the spectrum, anal rape, pornography, exposure to pornography, the use of the children in sexual uh, exhibitions and so forth to what I call rape as routine, where women said yes, not because they wanted to engage in sex, but because they were too frightened not to. So there wasn't a little bit of rape, but it was rape nonetheless, because it was, it was a sexual act that was occurring under the uh, rubric of fear and punishment. Um, there were a range of intimidating acts that were illegal stalking, but which, for example, but which were not being enforced when the stalker was a partner, even though the data was showing us that the most dangerous forms of stalking, stalking which was most likely to result in a death, were being carried out by, by partners. 70% of stalkers were carried out by men who were known or involved with the victims. Second of all, these stalking relationships were not primarily couple relationships. They weren't marital relationships. Many of these stalkers who were partners were separated or single at the time that they were stalking. They weren't living with the women they were stalking, but they were stalking them nonetheless in the context of an ongoing abusive relationship. Anyway, just to make a long story short, there were a lot of acts, intimidation, and then there were a whole range of acts of psychological abuse, forms of control, exploitation, taking their money, telling them how to dress, controlling where they went, isolating them from friends and family, all kinds of acts that were clearly part of these abusive relationships, but which weren't anticipated 
by any of the models that we had domestic violence. So for the, on the one hand, domestic violence was an ongoing problem. In part, it was ongoing because the men were simply not being put away, but in part it was ongoing because this was a course of conduct that was being deliberately engaged in. I was more and more convinced and the women that I talked to in the criminal cases convinced me that the men engaged in, not because they wanted to physically hurt women, but because they wanted to deprive them of their rights and liberties and of their dignity. And so it seemed to me that by focusing on physical harms and by making physical injury, the calculus against which we assess whether abuse was serious, we had completely missed the mark. That if these were men, and if anybody had done these kinds of things that were being done to any population of men under any condition other than indentured slavery or prisoner of war, these would be considered the highest possible crimes against humanity. But because it was happening to women, thousands and hundreds of thousands, millions of women throughout the world, and it was happening in the context of their homes, it was considered only a domestic, a minor offense. So it was those three things, the fact that no one was going to jail, the fact that we weren't having a positive effect on reducing the harms, and the fact that the real nature of the harm that was occurring to women and children in these homes was not even being approached by our understanding of domestic violence researchers, as lawyers, as judges, police, and even in, as advocates in the women's movement. And so that set me out to write course control. And I tried to do that on the one hand by laying out the model, what was really happening, looking at the data as much as we had, because we didn't have a model of course in control, we didn't have much data. We had some data on psychological abuse, a lot of data on sexual assault in the context of relationships, some data on stalking and partners, but no data on these control situations, on the isolation, the manipulation, the exploitation, all of these other facets, which women in the forensic context were telling me about in detail. I mean, women told me stories, some of which I recount in the book, of having to, you know, wash the floors so you could see the lines in the floor, you know, to, uh, uh, to account for every penny of their money to, uh, you know, to basically wear only certain kind of clothes uh, to prepare dinner just so, and even if they weren't just so, you know, they were held to account physically and punished. Uh, to use certain kinds of toilet paper in the bathroom to spend certain amount of time, watch certain time TV shows, walk in a certain kind of way, wear the hair in a certain kind of way. All the liberties and indignities that men would rage about if somebody tried to tell me how to, you know, dress a certain way. I'm mean, other than my mother, but I mean, I mean I, if another person had tried to control my life in that kind of microdynamic way, and I had out, I had become enraged and killed them, no judge in the land would 
commit me. And yet these women had to provide proofs, not that their dignity, their dignity was insulted, not that, uh, that they were made low because they weren't treated as persons, or their intelligence was insulted by being made stupid, or they were made to deface themselves physically, but they, uh, they had to have physical proofs in order to justify the fact that they had become enraged. So it, it, all of these things were wrong, and also that I needed to have a defense that could explain why somebody like Sally Shallon, Sally Shallon was a woman who had been married for 37 years, and very early in their marriage, he's in England, very early in their marriage, he had thrown her down a flight of stairs and she had challenged him. You know, it was terrible, it was bad, she was frightened for the rest of her life, but there were very little, very few physical incidents for the rest of their life. They stayed together, he psychologically abused her, he stole her money, he did all kinds of other things to her, controlled how she dressed, he took her car away as punishment, he raped her once when she, when he thought she was flirting with another, uh, one of his best friends who he wasn't, he, he committed a, a, a vicious animal rape. But for the most part, there was relatively little physical abuse, but a tremendous amount of psychological abuse. So Sally Challen separated from him finally. She came into a small inheritance of money. She moved away. But by that time, after 37 years, her mind was so controlled by him that when she looked in the mirror, all she could do was see him and ask his permission. Can, should I do this? Can I go out? Can I? She was completely abused. So she went back to him. Mm-hmm. They had already agreed to a divorce settlement, which she had taken a tremendous amount of loss. She had agreed to it. And he said, look, I'll take you back, but I want to stick to this settlement we made, this financial agreement. I'll take you back. And would you give up your girlfriend? Yeah, I'll give up my girlfriend. He said, look, go out and buy me lunch. Go out and get me lunch. So she went out of the morning range. She went out and she bought him some bacon and eggs. Came back to make him lunch. She made him lunch. She saw him on the telephone and he'd been talking to his girlfriend. So she said, what's up? You've been talking to your Don't question me. Don't question me. And he'd been saying that to her all along. Don't ask me any questions. Basically, he required. Anyway, Sally challenged me, a long story short, when he sat down for lunch, she took a hammer out of her handbag and she hit him 28 times. And she was tried for domestic violence and she used the domestic, I mean, she was tried for killing him and she used the domestic violence defense but there was very little violence, as I said. And, you know, there were all those blows. They, the prosecution argued she took the hammer that was premeditated. And after she killed him, she rolled him in a rug and she went out and she picked up her son from work. People felt that was a very callous thing to do. So she was convicted and she was sentenced to a long prison sentence, 45 years. Then the next several years, course of control began to get into the air. First thing that happened was Theresa May, who was, was to become Prime Minister of England, 
was the Home Secretary, but the equivalent of our Secretary of Health and Human Services. And Theresa May took the definition of coercive control from my book, and she put it into the definition in the Home Secretary's official definition and replaced all the definitions in England, all 14 definitions of domestic violence that were being used in the health services, that were being used in child protection, that were being used in all of the youth services around England with the definition of course of control. And the next thing that happened was Nigella Lawson, who is a reporter, used to write for New York Times, a uh, food writer, fashion writer. She came out and she described how she had been psychologically abused in her marriage. And the biggest thing that happened was that there's a soap opera in England called The Archers about a little couple from mining town and they have all these troubles and people, it's a 15 minute radio soap opera. And it's like nothing on Netflix yet in this country. People stop lunch, they stop work. They, people all over Europe tune in to hear what's gonna happen, what is Jeffrey Archer gonna do? And they have these little problems with their nieces and their nephews and all the families. Anyway, Jeffrey Archer makes a crack about how frothy dressed that Mrs. Archer was wearing, and she stabbed him. And they have on the radio, they have a trial, an hour-long trial. And members of parliament were appointed to the jury. Dr. Who came off the television and he was on the jury. They had a radio and, and over five million people tuned in to listen to the trial. And she put on a course of control defense and she described the way he had made her low by milling her in the house and make her do all these things. And she was acquitted. And right after that, Sally Challen came up for appeal. And I was testifying before the Royal High Court of Appeals in front of these judges with leaks in this huge fancy courtroom and explained what coercive control was. And they had enough documentation and there was enough evidence from Sally herself on all the different things that he had done to her, psychologically, financially, you know, stalking and lying, embezzling money. And Sally walked out of the courtroom, a free woman, and they dropped all charges. And the next three months, they refused to bring charges against two women who killed their husbands in similar situations where there had been no physical violence to speak of, but where, or at least the physical violence wasn't the immediate provocation. And so England developed, adopted a course control law. And Scotland basically took the whole definition from my book with all the physical abuse, the sexual abuse, the intimidation, the control, the isolation, and they put it into what they call a bespoke offense, which means that even though stalking is already a crime, when stalking is conducted in a relationship, it has a dimension and a seriousness that is like no other. So it needs a separate enumeration as the stalking up course control offense. 
When sexual assault occurs in the context of an ongoing relationship, when child abuse occurs in the context of an ongoing relationship, it is not like child abuse where you have the can be broken bone schema to determine whether there's a risk of homicide. It's an ongoing battering. The death from a thousand cuts, if you'll pardon the analogy. Not the, not the severity of the injury, but the torturousness of the ongoing abuse. That is the problem. And so Scotland developed this crime and in Scotland carries the most serious sentence next to murder. In other words, it's not a domestic violence offense. Oh, it's just a domestic violence, Charlie. We're going out on a domestic violence call. This is a crime which carries, it carries 14 years in prison, which is the most serious offense next to kidnapping you can do. And on conviction. And Scotland appointed a judge who had been the chief defense attorney in the Lockerbie Palmer case, one of the most prominent jurists in Europe, to oversee a two-year time period when the entire justice system would revamp to become aware of what coercion control was and put the prosecution and police on notice. They were going to be there to bring, as I put it, when I introduced this to Ireland on the first day when the police were coming to introduce the course control law in Ireland, I'm bringing liberty through the door. Because this is now, we were, we're understanding domestic violence, which we thought of as an assault crime back in the 70s and 80s. We're now recognizing that it's a liberty crime. So this is essentially what brought us to course control. And in the book, in the first book, uh, I basically lay out this framework of course control with the data that we had. Now, of course, since I've written the book, there are over 500 articles in the literature on course control. We have documentation up the wazoo. I'm doing a second edition now, or I hope to get at least some of these articles into shape. But basically, uh, we've, we're now, we've got laws now in about 12, 14 countries. Australia's now in the process of implementing new laws. Four states now have New York and California and Hawaii, Florida are now talking about course control legislation. Um, we're going slow in this country, but basically it's a whole new framework for understanding abuse. A new approach. And so this course of control also could be called emotional abuse. No. Uh, no? No. It's a, not at all emotional abuse. I mean, it, emotional abuse is emotional abuse. I mean, what, what, why do you say emotional abuse? What's emotional about taking someone's money? What's emotional about not letting them use the toilet or tying the time they or telling them what TV shows they watch, or stalking them. Why is that emotional abuse? Well, I just, want, me. Oh, I just don't want anyone to get confused because people always say, I mean, like, from what I've heard from being in court, 
it's always like, well, this is emotional abuse. If someone, you know, um, keeps you from wearing makeup, for instance. If somebody keeps, if somebody kept a man putting on his pants, so that he had to go outside without his pants on, would you call that emotional abuse? I don't think any man in his right mind would call that emotional abuse. If a woman needs makeup in order to appear at work and she's not allowed to put her makeup on, or she has to wear makeup, at, or she has to wear makeup in order to cover bruises, and all the people in that workplace know, and she's ashamed about that, that's not emotional abuse. That's a that's a much more deep kind of humiliation. I mean, yes, I mean, there is emotional abuse involved in coercive control, but what we're talking about, and, and that's the difference, is these are crimes, and I, I can't emphasize this too much. Look, I, I, we can talk about the family court if you want, but the family court to me is not a serious place. It is serious in the sense that it, it has serious consequences for women and children, and men too which are often quite terrible. But it's not serious in the sense that I don't consider it a place where law and justice take place. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, so because, because so much of it is based, on, is based on hearsay and it's a civil court, it's an equity court. It's based on ideas, traditional ideas that come out of the 15th century about what family relationships should be. And a lot of it is based on um, the morality of legislating morality rather than justice and law. There's a place for that. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for equity. But we're not talking about equity issues here. We're not talking about distribution of property. We're talking about taking away what are the rights and liberties that are supposed to be your birthright as an American citizen or as a person your right to control your body, your right to speak your own voice as you're an adult, your right to have a job, your right to your income, your right to determine your physical self and your, your body and so And the fact that women don't have these rights freely to exercise in millions of homes is what's at issue here. These rights were taken away in any kind of public space by a dictator or by Anybody, I mean, we go crazy. But somehow, when we get into the family setting, it's assumed, even though there's an imbalance of power that's being exercised, that somehow that's okay. So yeah, I mean, psychological abuse is part of this. You're ugly, you're so... But you see, the thing you have to understand is that, and I think the thing that we didn't understand for so long which at the impact of psychological abuse, both internal impact, but also the fact that women come to believe many of the things that men say about them, if they say of them enough, is the result of the imbalance in power to start. If I can't say no, if I can't say no, nah, if I can't refuse a demand, what coercive control is about is about the idea that a man makes it more difficult. Well, not always a man, sometimes a woman, sometimes same-sex relationships, but mostly coercive control occurs in relationships between 
more powerful men and less powerful women, but not, not always. But basically what's involved is it makes it easier for you to comply than to refuse a demand. So if you comply enough, if you, whether you wear your makeup or don't wear your makeup, I mean, I have a case now I'm, I'm working in where he, at the wedding ceremony, she was wearing a dog collar. This was a guy, a major sports figure she was married to. And she was a sports, she was a major figure of broadcaster. And she was, she was, she was wearing, she was wearing a dog collar in the, in the wedding. And she said to me, I asked her, didn't you know something was wrong when he made you wear a dog collar at the wedding? Didn't that tell you something? And they've been seeing each other a few years before that. And she, she's a Mormon. And, and she said, yes, but, so I said, why'd you do it? She said, well, I didn't want to make any trouble at that point. He wasn't, he wasn't being me, he wasn't doing that, you know. And it was, she was made to be afraid. He, I mean, he's a big guy, he's a basketball player. He's, he's you know, about six, seven, and he's a good. But she was made to be afraid so long that it just became easier for her to say yes, to comply. And after a while, her enslavement was simply taken for granted. And to the outside world, if you don't look at the power imbalance and you don't correct that with justice, see, that's what we're saying now. We're saying this is not a failing matter. This is a, this is a matter for public justice. That that imbalance of power, which we wouldn't recognize if it was being exercised by an authoritarian figure over a subject popula population, we have to also recognize when it's being used to exploit persistent sexual inequalities or racial inequalities or any inequalities at the level of personal life. And that's what virtual control is designed to do. How long, I mean, with you being a sociologist, how long do you think, you know, all of this, I mean, this probably, this coercive control probably has gone on for, you know, 800 years, we'll say. No, I don't think so. I think coercive control is relatively new because I think, I think up until probably 50 or 60 years ago, well, I mean, you want to say there were always coercive controlling relationships. But I think for the most part, women's enslavement women's inequality was for the most part structural until fairly recently. I mean, after all, women couldn't get jobs. So the idea of a woman being confined to the home and not being able to go to work, for instance, which is a huge issue in these course of controlling relationships, or women having an income, which is her own income, and not being entitled to it because she takes it from her. Mm -hmm. which is a huge issue, of course, of controlling relations. Those are new issues. And they're new issues because women's equality is new. Women have gained. So I think coercive control is taking advantage of the new, in, the new equalities that women have won. Mm -hmm. 
by appropriating the gains, the privileges that women have achieved through that, their money, their education, and their skills. What the ideal, of course, being told, scenario is one in which a man has to do all the things that a traditional woman would have done for a man, cook, clean, you know, give him sex on demand, take care of his children, do so forth, and earns an income, and manages the properties, and negotiates with the neighbors to have a decent social life, and keeps up the garden, and does all of these things on command. The difference is, and many women in my practice would even do all those things gladly in exchange for gratitude and appreciation. But in the course of controlling relationship, unlike many traditional relationships, which are also unequal, by the way, the course of control is not just inequality, it's inequality with vengeance. In many courses of controlling relationships, the men hoard all of the benefits and privileges to themselves. They want to control the money. They want to control everything in the relationship. They want to have their affairs and they want their woman to be available sexually when they want. They don't want her to be available sexually. Just they want to be available sexually. So it's a question of hoarding privilege. It's, this is a very unjust situation. So no, I don't think coercion control exists in the whole place sometimes. I think it's a relatively new phenomenon. And I think it's a phenomenon primarily in societies in which women have enjoyed relative, relative freedoms over the last century, but have not been given the freedom in personal life to appropriate those freedoms and equalities and translate them into a full personal liberty. In other words, I think personal life has remained a site to a certain extent of women's bondage. Now, at the same time, it's a certain site where they can also realize their relationships to children, realize their relationships of love. It also has tremendous potential personal life. I'm not saying we should eliminate personal life, but I'm saying personal life, insofar as it allows men to take advantage of what the new privileges and equalities women have enjoyed by garnering those benefits for themselves, that's, that's a new kind of injustice. And I think that's one we have to recognize. So I think course of control in that sense, in the modern sense that I describe it, is new. It's not, domestic violence is old. Mm -hmm. But I think, Violence against women is, is as old as Egyptians. But I think the course of control thing that I'm talking about, where, they use, where the home and personal life becomes a focal point for establishing a little kingdom, I think that is new. And with these shelters, have you, I don't know if you're still able to monitor the shelters. Are there more women? now in 2021 than there were when you started more shelters yes or more uh cases of women going into these shelters no i, I think look I, I think the shelters wherever they've been open they've been full let's mm -hmm. just put it that way 
Um, I think there's been a retrenchment within the women's movement uh, in some parts of the country and some parts of the world where there's uh, a rethinking. I mean, I mean, I heard yesterday that, for example, um, in certain parts of uh, it, New York, I think, and in certain other parts of the country, they're now taking men into shelters, for example, maybe maybe some in gay gay relationships of men, and and there's some co-ed shelters. Well, a lot of, when we started the first shelters, the idea was not just to provide women safety. The idea was to give women a collective space where they could see each other's oppression and act together to relieve it. The shelter was supposed to become a logic pad, as it was in some of our early work in England. But we went out and we seized on the buildings, we went out and we demonstrated at hospitals, or we demonstrated city councils. So the idea was that it was supposed to be an activist space, not a hiding away. Well, if shelters have taken all kinds of forms since then, there's a lot of, you know, but it's still, it's still the cutting edge of safety for millions and millions of women worldwide is, is the refuge of the shelter. Mm-hmm. And there's still the, the, as long as these men are remaining at large, it'll become an, it'll remain an essential resource for, for our community. Why do you think these men uh, are behaving like this? Same reason all criminals behave the way they do, because they can. They think they can get away with it because they need the money or they need the privilege or they have a thing. I don't think there's any deep psychological reason for it. I, I, I mean, I think, I think any, any more than there is for somebody who does identity theft or any, anybody who does any kind of hoarding or stealing of any other person's property because they think they can have it and it's, they've never been told they can't. Hmm. I mean, I, I know, I, I mean, there's a lot of policemen who do this, a lot of soldiers who do this, a lot of politicians who do this. I mean, it, these, these men come from all classes and all, uh, all walks of life. I, I don't think there's any, uh, I mean, we're not, remember now, we're not talking about violence, we're not talking about impulse-driven behavior. We're talking about planful, organized behavior, the same behavior it takes to fill out your tax return. It takes to monitor somebody's going and coming during the day. You know, the same, the same skill it takes to plan a vacation, it takes to, uh, follow your wife's route to work and to school every day. So this, the, the course control is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the men put a lot of work into it. it. It's not the kind of thing you, you can get away with, with a disorganized personality. So these are not disorganized, impulsive guys who are out of their mind. These are people who are often very calm. You know, your judges, your lawyers, your your bricklayers, your electricians, people spend a lot of time playing. Um, as far as 
these players, these bad actors, um, what profession do you, have you noticed the most to be coercively controlling? I don't think it's any profession. I, I wouldn't say that. I would say there's some professions where men are more controlling than others, like law. But, you know, maybe, maybe policing lends itself to this because you're supporting people around being a doctor. A lot of, a lot of the family cases where I see coercion control, the, the husbands are physicians or professors. But I think it's just as common among working class people as, as not. I, I think the forms of control may be a little different. I think now that we get into a lot of the micromanagement stuff that's involved in sophisticated forms of stalking, uh, you require a certain kind of technical expertise, but it's not high level expertise. It's not like, I mean, a lot of the cyber stalking that we're seeing now, which is a huge issue, um, is very low level technology. It's not, it's not high level stuff. So I don't think there's any particular profession involved. But I could be wrong. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. Do you think uh, women could be uh, just as bad course of controlling their spouses? Have sure. you heard? Sure. I mean, we have. I published uh, articles on um, with Marianne Hester uh, in on um, course of control in among uh, same sex relationships. And I think in sometimes, and uh, if a woman had access to certain means of power and control, women can. I don't look. I don't think it's anything about men being men or women being women that makes men more likely to force putting control than women. I just think we live in a society in which sexual inequality is reality. Any more than I think that uh, whites are any likely to be more racist than than blacks intrinsically. It's just that we live in a racist society in which 90% of racial advantage accrues to persons uh, who are white. And so the disadvantaged are going to be people who are people of color. And the same thing is true. I don't think it's anything intrinsically, biologically different about men and women that makes it more, you know, prone to controlling others. I mean, when you talk about violence, it's a different story. Maybe there's some biological predisposition for aggression, but this is not, it's almost the reverse of violence. Because, because what you're talking about is low level violence. You're talking about pushes and shoves and grabs and punches. If you, if you wait in this business for serious violence before you make an arrest or an injury, you miss ninety percent of all the course of control. You won't get it until it's almost it's almost too late. So no, I don't. I, I think I think seventy eighty percent of it is going to be men coercively controlling women. So far in our arrests, only a tiny percentage of cases involve women, and uh, and even in those cases, it's 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 dubious. But but. So, so you know, you have to look where the money is. You have to look where the power is. Sometimes it is, it, it will, it will accrue to women. But in general, it's going to, it's going to be men. Hmm. This has been so fascinating. And 
what is your, well, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but what has been your worst case that you have seen in court that you've had to testify on? The worst case, I can't say that. I have, I have several cases now that I'm involved in. Uh, I have a case that I can't really talk about mm -hmm. that's on appeal now in Colorado. Uh, that's this one. You know, for me, the hardest cases have been, and I have one case that's on appeal now in Florida, uh, in cases in which children are killed. Um, and, and I just published an article on um, the Pelkey case. Daniel Pelkey was a boy who was starved to death in England, coming to England. That was a very difficult case. And uh, uh, they were, his mother and father were convicted and his mother committed suicide on his birthday, would have been his birthday a year after she went to jail. And that was a very difficult case. And because my investigation case, after the fact, after the convictions, I found there were, had been over 250 social workers, police, and others who had seen the boy and seen the mother and knew that the father, Mar Marius Lucic, was beating the mother and abusing the child. The school knew, the police knew, they had been in and out of that house. They knew there was domestic violence. The mother had reported it repeatedly. The father was visible, he was well known. See, the other thing about coercive control, I, I haven't said this to you today, but coercive controllers are well known. We used to talk about domestic violence happens behind closed doors. That was because we didn't understand that what we we're talking about was a course of conduct that is often going on for five, seven, 10, 15, in the case of, Sally challenged 37 years. In almost all of these cases, there are dozens, not just a few, not just in-laws, not just children, not just neighbors, but co-workers, police, social workers, health workers, who knew. A week before he starved to death, Daniel's mother, Magdalena Ruchuk took him to a pediatrician. He had lost a third of his body weight. He had bruises all over his body. And all the signs that we classically identify with child abuse, the school had referred him to the pediatrician because he was at high risk. And the pediatrician did what we used to find pediatricians do when in the 1960s and 70s, 100 years ago, before we even invented child abuse. He woke the boy up for rare metabolic disorders. He never asked Daniel what was going on or at some point. And I couldn't believe it. And two days later, you know, and the boy was dead. And I went back into the court record 
and I looked at the pediatrician's notes, and in otherwise a typed record, he had written in handwriting on the bottom of the record, mother's boyfriend is in the room. In other words, he was terrified of, Mar of Marius Luchev, just like the mother was. And instead of diagnosing and saving that boy's life, he retreated to another, you understand what I'm saying? To mm -hmm. another diagnosis. And so she was convicted. She should have been saved. The boy died. Those are tough cases. And the case I have in Florida is like that where kids were killed and the mother's being charged. Case in Oklahoma, I have, in Colorado, I have a case like that. And it, it, it's because we look the other way. And so now what we're offering is, one of the things that we've learned, that the new thing we've learned in the last five years, is that a lot of what we used to call child abuse, and we used to ascribe to largely neglectful parents, usually mothers, is actually the course of control of children. We've always known there's a huge overlap between child abuse and domestic violence. But now what we recognize is that the same men who are coercively controlling their wives are often using the same tactics, the isolation, the low-level physical abuse, the sexual abuse, the intimidation, the surveillance, you know, all of the same control tactics they're using with their wives, they're using with their children. In addition to weaponizing the children and to using the children as allies against the women. And so instead of talking about child abuse, we should be talking about the course of control of children. And I think we should basically, uh, the next push I'm going to make after I finish the course, new edition of course control is to do a book on children because I want to get us out of the business of child abuse and into the business of taking seriously the harms to children. I think we should be dealing with neglect cases and the range of neglect cases, only a tiny proportion of cases that are currently handled by the child protection system on family court involve actual physical abuse. And those cases where children are most likely to die are almost always, with few exceptions, almost always cases where the child and the mother are both being abused and they're being abused by a man who can be easily identified and be removed. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to have you back on my podcast after you write the book of the children. I'm so alive. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that would be great. I've learned so much, and I'm so glad you came on my podcast, and I appreciate your time. Oh, good luck. I enjoy it. Thanks very much. How can people get a hold of your book, Coercive Control? Well, they can buy it. It's, it's, I mean, it should be available on Amazon. It's from Oxford. It's in paperback. You wait another year and a half, it'll be a new edition out, but I can get it now because new editions have new cases and the old cases are great. Mm -hmm. So you should definitely, definitely get a, get a hold of the book.
This has been a fascinating topic. I totally appreciate it. Good luck. Slam the Gavel is a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in the family courtrooms that in turn perpetuate parental alienation. I'm your host, Marion Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Poems of Truth. Um, join us again in the future for another uh, episode with Dr. Evan and other guests. Thank you so much, Dr. Evan. <laughs>